This morning, the essential doctrine that we want to consider is the doctrine of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What exactly does that mean? And what is the hope that is ours? Because Jesus willingly laid down his life for us on the cross. Many denominations today have abandoned this very important, fundamental doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is going to return. Sadly, the goal of of many churches today and many denominations is to somehow make heaven on earth with their doctrine, with their teaching, a, a utopia where everything is lined up with the teaching of Jesus Christ and and that we all learn to love and get along with one another and somehow make heaven on earth. That is not what the Bible teaches. In fact, it teaches quite the opposite. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 19. The Apostle Paul makes somewhat of a, a stunning statement here and one that, that certainly opposes that very thought that Christians are somehow responsible to make this life in this world a better world and to make this heaven for us. But here the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. We are to be pitied if, if this is our only hope, if this life is the hope of the Christian faith. It's not. Jesus is coming to take us to our eternal home. Sadly, many associate the the belief of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming of the Lord. It has been so abused, and it's certainly mocked by the world. It's associated with fanatical cults like uh, I'll give in in my lifetime. I don't know who the the current uh, fanatics are, but some of us remember David Koresh, Jim Jones, They talked about the second coming of Christ, and and so those who believe that are, are, well, they're nutcases. They're they're fanaticals, right? Have to be, because look at those people. I believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ. But in Luke 21 and verse 8, the fact that some of these other fanatical cults arise and talk about the second coming of the Lord shouldn't surprise us. In fact, some of them claim to be Christ incarnate, the, the they are the ones they've come already. But none of that should surprise us because the Bible teaches us that that's going to happen. And so the fact that it does should actually cause us to understand that the promise is sure. So let's read Luke 21 verse 8, where Jesus says, take heed that you not be deceived for many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time has drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. So we're given a warning that there are going to be imposters. So that shouldn't surprise us. There are those like another name some may recognize, Harold Camping. On two different occasions, he was advertising that he knew the exact date that Jesus was coming again. And of course, both those dates came and went. And so, and so people say, see, the second coming, it's, it's, it's false and it's only for nutcases and fanaticals. And and so when you say you believe in the second coming, many people put you in that same circle. Well, we need to ask ourselves, are, are we crazy for believing that Jesus is coming again? Or is this really what the Bible teaches? 
And so we want to look at a few scriptures here so that we know that we have specific promises made by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if he is who he says he is, and all the evidence points to the fact that he's the Son of God who laid down his life to pay the debt of our sin on the cross, all the evidence points to that. If he is who he says he is, we can trust everything he's told us. Let's read in Matthew 24 and verse 36. Jesus says, but of that day, that is the coming of the Lord, and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Jesus as the incarnate Son of God in his humanity. He didn't have that part of his human knowledge to know when the Father had set that date for the coming of the Lord. But his Father knows. And so those that say they know when Jesus is coming and and. All through the the centuries, there have been those who've predicted, well, Jesus is coming this day because, and they pretend that the scriptures give us that day and that hour. Jesus said, no one knows. So I'm going with that. And so when somebody tells me I know when Jesus is coming, I can write them off as a false prophet (coughs) automatically. I don't have to investigate a whole lot. They say they know when Jesus is coming. They're a liar. Jesus said, no one knows but the Father. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 and 2. We can know the seasons, not the day nor the hour, but we can know that the coming of the Lord is near. This is what Paul teaches us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and verses 1 and 2. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. In fact, it's when people aren't looking for him, that's when he's coming. When people keep saying, oh, that, you know, that's, that's for fanaticals. No, we don't need to pay attention to that. Again, many churches even have come to this place. Well, let's not talk about the second coming of the Lord because the world laughs at us when we do that. Well, I always want to say what the Lord says. I want to be in agreement with him because... I don't know whether you've noticed over the years, society has been wrong on a lot of things, but the word of God has never failed and it never will. The Bible tells us how we can recognize imposters while we anticipate the coming of our Lord. We need to ask ourselves, okay, are we like those other cults that are just grasping hold of false hopes and just fooling ourselves? John 14, this If you truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God, John 14, 1 through 3 ought to be sufficient for you to find comfort in your heart concerning this doctrine, that it's true. John 14, verses 1 to 3. Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. Now, that's a pretty clear promise. Jesus says, I'm coming again. I'm going to take you to a prepared place. We are a prepared people for a prepared place in heaven. It is eternal. It goes beyond this life. It goes beyond the grave. 
This is what Jesus has promised. And since he's prepared it for us, he's coming again to take us to, to live with him in that place. Now, as we study the Bible and what it teaches about the second coming of Christ, we quickly are going to find out that there are two aspects to his second coming. They, are, they both fall under that heading, the second coming of Christ. But there's two different stages or two different aspects of his second coming. The first one is his coming to the church, to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ since the church was born on the day of Pentecost until the day that he comes. The second aspect of his coming is his coming in glory with the church to save the nation of Israel, to restore a remnant of the nation of Israel, and to usher them in into that thousand-year reign of the kingdom age. So two different aspects. One is his coming to the church, as we'll find out. His coming to the church is going to be in stages. We'll look at that, and, and we'll actually have another specific lesson on ranks in the resurrection. But we'll, we'll lump all of those ranks together right now uh, concerning his coming to the church, which begins before the seven years of tribulation begins. Now, to help us outline what the Bible teaches, I'm going to ask four questions about each of these aspects of the second coming of Christ. And we'll probably only have time to, to look at his coming to the church this morning. But the first question we want to ask is, what precedes his coming to the church? What, what can we look for? Before Jesus comes, what should we look for to be happening around? What are the seasons that will precede his coming? The second question, how or in what manner does he come? We'll find out that for the church, there's one manner in which he comes, and when he comes in glory, it's a whole different manner. The third question is, what takes place at his coming? What exactly happens? And the fourth question is, what takes place after his coming? And so let's ask and answer these questions concerning his coming to the church. What precedes his coming to the church? We often speak of the signs of his coming, and we should. But as you search out the Word of God, you find out that most of the signs concerning his second coming have to do with his coming in glory to deliver the nation of Israel. Most of those signs that Jesus speaks of in, in Matthew, they have to do with his coming in glory. And there's really only one major sign that we are to look for as his coming to the church. But when we see some of these other signs that point to his coming in glory, they're already beginning to take place. That should only encourage us to understand his coming to the churches even sooner. Does that make, does that make sense? So yes, there, there's signs that have to do with his coming to Israel. But if we already begin to see some of those signs taking place, which we do, that just means his coming to the church is that much closer for us. So let's look at this first sign of apostasy. That's the one that is a sign to us that Jesus is coming to the church. When apostasy, which simply means to fall away from truth, when God's people, and apostasy has to do with God's people, when God's people begin to neglect and then to abandon and deny what the Bible declares to be true, some of these essential doctrines that we've been considering, 
there are those within Christendom that are saying, no, that's, that's not true. Jesus didn't literally uh, die and then rise from the dead. Some say, well, he wasn't really dead when they put him in the grave, in the cool grave. He, he uh, revived because of that. He didn't really die. That'd be impossible for him to come back. The church, many in the church are beginning to deny these fundamental truths, including the second coming of Christ. That's a sign when God's people begin to deny what the Bible says is true. First Timothy 4, we're given warning after warning not to fall into that apostasy. First Timothy chapter 4 and verses 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Do you realize that there are some doctrines being taught in churches today that the source of those teachings are actually demons? It's not the Bible. It's not the Word of God, but doctrines of demons. If it contradicts what the Bible teaches, it's a doctrine of demons. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So there are those that are denying truth. It's called apostasy. And that, the Spirit says, has revealed that that's a sign that Jesus is coming. Second Timothy 3, verses 1 to 5. And so it is distressing when we hear so many within Christendom deny many of the teachings of the Bible. It is discouraging to hear that. And yet there's another side that says, even so, Lord Jesus, come. It's a sign that Jesus is near, his second coming. Second Timothy 3, 1 to 5. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Know it. Understand it. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal despisers of, of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Well, he's surely talking about the, the lost in the world, isn't he? Verse 5 says, having a form of godliness. So he's talking about those who continue to pretend to be followers of Christ, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people, turn away. We don't associate with those who proclaim false doctrine. It's a sign of the coming of the Lord, apostasy. When I look around, I know the season is here. Jesus is coming. Instead of being embarrassed by these kinds of doctrines, the second coming of Christ, I proclaim them. I rejoice in them. It's my hope because I know that Jesus cannot lie. He said he's coming again. Second Timothy 3, verses 13 to 17. Another sign that we know Jesus is coming, a part of that apostasy. Second Timothy 3.13 says, But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. There are so many that embrace these false doctrines because it, as Paul 
says in another place, it tickles their ears. It's what they want to hear. But it is satisfying their fleshly desires rather than understanding what God has revealed to be true. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. All Scripture, that's where we find doctrine. That's where we find truth. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, either you believe that or you don't. This is why you can't pick and choose what you believe from the Bible. It's either all true or it's all false. There's no middle ground here. The world can laugh at us and mock us and, oh, you're, you're just fanatical and you're naive and you're so easily manipulated. And No, actually, we're not manipulated at all if we stand firm on the Word of God. If you say what God says, you'll always be found right sooner or later. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, that is, for teaching, for reproof. The Word of God has the authority to tell you you did it wrong. The Bible has that authority. For correction, the Bible has, has the authority and the wisdom to tell you how to do it right. For instruction in righteousness, it can teach you how to live right so that you don't have to fall into the, the trap of sin and carnality and unbelief and apostasy. It can teach you the right path. And why is the Word of God given to us? That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you want to be the best human you could possibly be, you need to know the Word of God and apply it to your life. Then you'll be everything your Creator intended for you to be. Apostasy is a falling away from truth. This is why we emphasize sound doctrine and truth so much, so that we don't fall into the trap of believing doctrines of demons and being deceived by those that may be very eloquent and very persuasive. But if it contradicts the Bible, it's false. Only the Word of God is true. We need to start with that, with that understanding. Many today, many churches, many Christians reject the authority of the Word of God. And it's difficult to deal with someone who does not accept the Bible as the Word of God because we have no common ground. You try to explain to a fellow Christian, and again, there are those that have come to a genuine born-again experience by putting their faith in Jesus Christ as, as their Savior, but then they never grow beyond that. And sometimes you'll try to explain to them the, the path of righteousness that God has laid out for us for our protection, for, for our blessing, and you say, well, you know, the Bible says this. Well, I know what the Bible says, but what, what can you do with that? The Bible is our final authority for doctrine and for conduct. But when you fall away from that, it's a sign that the coming of the Lord is near, the sign of apostasy. If you know that Jesus is coming, the Bible tells us that those who have this hope within them do what? purify themselves even as he is pure. This is why many Christians do not live a godly life. They don't really believe Jesus is coming. Now, as we'll find out, I don't know whether Jesus is coming in my lifetime. I live every day as if he is, because I see the signs. The season for his coming is near, but he may not come in my lifetime, but I want to be ready to meet him when he comes. 
Every child of God has a home in heaven. We'll, we'll look at those details a little bit later in the study. But the Bible tells us to be ready when Jesus comes. The second question concerning his coming is, how does he come? In what manner does he come? When we're talking about his coming to the church, let's go to 1 Thessalonians 4 in verses 13 to 18. This aspect of his coming is often referred to as the secret coming, his secret coming, because he doesn't reveal himself to the world at this time, only to those that are watching and waiting. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 4, I believe that we see the pattern in which every rank in the resurrection will experience. His coming to the church is going to take place in ranks over a period of time. Those believers that are watching and waiting for him and living a godly life have allowed the Holy Spirit to guide them and, and to direct them in their decisions and in their life, and that when they fall short of that, they repent and return. Because, again, we're not talking about sinless Christians being the overcoming Christians or the first rank, but we're talking about those that constantly are surrendering their will to the will of God. They will be taken to heaven. Jesus will come for them before the seven years of tribulation that we read about in the book of Revelation, before it begins. And then, between then and the middle of that tribulation period, every Christian in their own rank, in their own glory, they will be taken to heaven in the manner that we read in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Many read this passage and say, well, that only pertains to the first rank. I believe it's the pattern for every rank beginning with the first rank. And so in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, we read these words. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. This is how Jesus comes when he comes to the church. Concerning those who have fallen asleep, that is, Christians that have died a physical death. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And so in this passage, we understand when we compare Scripture with Scripture, Paul tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The moment the Christian dies, his spirit and soul are immediately in the presence of the Lord. So now when he comes, we see his, the spirit and soul of those that have died a physical death before the coming of the Lord. Now they're coming back with him. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means proceed those who are asleep, those that have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. I, that passage always thrills me to know how Jesus, how joyful it is for Jesus to come and get me. He'll descend from heaven with a shout, a shout of victory, a, a shout of joy. That day's finally come. He gave his life for me. He died on the cross for me. He loves me. That love is what overwhelmed me to know that Jesus, the Son of God, left the glories of heaven to die for me, that I might have eternal life, that I might have a home in heaven for eternity. And that love, it'll cause him to shout with victory and with joy, the voice of an archangel. That's not Gabriel. I'm not, I'm not waiting to hear Gabriel's trumpet or Gabriel's voice. An archangel simply means the chief messenger. Who's the chief messenger of the Trinity? It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
These are describing all of Jesus's voices, the trump of God. In Revelation, we read where Jesus speaks, and it sounds as if it is a trumpet. Jesus is going to come for me. And the dead in Christ will rise first. I thought they were coming with him. Spirit and soul are coming with him because they're already there. But they'll be reunited with a glorified body. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Where? In the clouds. He's not coming to the world at this time. The world's not going to know anything about it. He's coming to those that are looking for him. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Do you believe it? It's what Jesus said. It's what the Holy Spirit revealed to the Apostle Paul. It's either a lie. Throw it out if you want to. But I have found the word of God to be trustworthy in every aspect of life. Why would I doubt the promise of his coming? What takes place when he comes? We read there, already referred to it, the spirit and the soul of those that have gone on in physical death. They're coming back. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, I referred to it. You could write it down. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul says, I'm ready to die. That's the Lord's will, his time, because it means I'll immediately be in his presence. I don't have to wait for some day to see the Lord. I'll see him immediately. But the best is still yet to come because we won't receive our glorified body until that day when Jesus comes, that resurrection morning when Jesus comes. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52, we have this promise. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Not everybody understands it. It's there to be understood, but it's, it's a mystery to some. We shall not all sleep, that is, die a physical death, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. So this is when all the church is finally taken home. We'll all be changed. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. These mortal bodies will put on immortality. That's the word of God. This is why we don't fear death. It's not a fairy tale. It's not pie in the sky like the world accuses us of believing. It's the word of God. If I can't believe this, I can't believe anything. Life has no meaning. Life has no purpose. It's a vapor. It's here for a little bit and then it's gone. But for the child of God, I have a hope that starts right now in this life. I have hope in this life, but not only in this life. I have hope in eternity. There are different ranks of glory and different resurrections for the church. We'll see that in another lesson in detail. But this is the hope of every child of God. What follows the rapture? Well, we don't have time. <laughs> if you want to write down 2 Thessalonians 2, I'll give you a brief summary here. As Paul teaches us in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 to 12, when the first rank of believers from the church is taken out, then the seven years of tribulation begins. We see that as we study the book of Revelation. We see that timing that takes place. The four living ones, the 24 elders, are seen in heaven before the seals are opened, the seals that begin the tribulation period. Where there's a group of believers there before that tribulation begins. And these are the, the saints that have learned 
to trust the Lord in this life, that have prepared themselves, the, the lamb's wife who, who will be adorned with that wedding dress that is made up of the righteous acts of the saints. They've learned to live right in accordance to the word of God. They'll be in heaven before the tribulation begins. And so then the Antichrist, he begins his career. Starts out peaceable. Looks like, oh, this is the guy that has all the answers to all the world's problems. But then about the middle of the week, about the middle of the tribulation, three and a half years in, we see that all the church is, is taken home. According to the pattern of First Thessalonians, all the church will be in heaven by that time. That aspect of the second coming of Christ will be complete. And then what happens? The Antichrist will present himself as God. And he'll, that evil side that has always been there will be made manifest. And he will seek to destroy the Jews once and for all to wipe them off the planet. And then as we get to that last aspect, that's when Jesus is coming to save that remnant of Israel. A lot of Jews will be destroyed. But there'll be a remnant that'll be purified, come through the fire of the tribulation. And then it says that we who are already been caught up to heaven, we're going to come back with him to deliver the remnant of Israel. So that's what follows the coming of the Lord to the church. Saints, we have a blessed hope. It's real. Live your life in anticipation of the coming of the Lord. Don't let the world shame you into kind of ignoring this. Well, well, let's not talk about Jesus coming. Jesus is coming. Yes, there are fanaticals. There are nutcases that use this doctrine for their own wealth and their own cults. But I follow Jesus. And Jesus said he's gone to prepare a place for me. And I'm looking forward to that place. Let's stand and we'll have a song in closing.